Exploring Mormon Thought features discussions about Mormon doctrine and theology that correlate with topics in the book series of the same name written by scholar and theologian Blake Osler. Find us online at exploringmormonthought.com and facebook.com forward slash exploringmormonthought. Welcome to the next edition of Exploring Mormon Thought. As promised, today we're going to start on the second volume, which is titled The Problems of Theism and the Love of God. This second volume is the natural follow-up to the first one that we just finished a couple weeks ago, and the first chapter is titled Mormonism and the Nature of Divine Love, just to give you kind of an idea of where we're going today. But before we get into that, I was wondering, Dad, if you could just give us a brief overview of what is covered in this book topics-wise, and maybe how you decided to put them all together in this particular book. The chapters are all about soteriology, that is, a theory of salvation. And what I'm looking at in this book are the issues that relate to our salvation and exaltation, and more particularly the Mormon view of those particular issues and the issues that exist with respect to both the Mormon and the more broadly Judeo-Christian views of salvation. So what I want to do in the book is basically begin by laying down basic concepts that will be important later on in the discussion. I take on a few problems that are foundational for the rest of the discussion. One is the nature of divine love that we'll discuss tonight. The second is about providence and prayer that looks at the problems that we have in praying to a being like God and asking him to do anything. It's closely related to the problem of evil, but quite distinct, because it's not just how could God allow evil, it's to what extent can we expect God to respond to our requests should we expect him to respond? Is it even possible that God respond to those kinds of things? The next foundational chapter is essentially looking at various issues related to theism and moral obligation, moral theories, in which I develop a Mormon theory of ethics. It's an agape theory. Agape is the Greek word for love, and so it's a broadly agopic theory of ethics. I then look at the foundational issues of the discussion about what salvation is. I begin with a look at the notion of original sin as it exists in traditional Christianity and as it is echoed somewhat in Mormon thought. I then look at what is sin, what is the source of sin, and the way that we actually live our lives and in a way to ask questions about how we can heal from sin and recognize the effects of sin in our lives. And given my Gopic theory of ethics, sin turns out to be a type of self-deception at base. And I look at self-deception theory and ask the important question, how could it possibly be that a person could be self-deceived? Because in order to deceive themselves, they must know what they're deceiving themselves about in order to hide it from themselves. So it's a very interesting area. I then look at soteriology in uh, LDS thought, looking at various theories of atonement throughout Christianity. But more important, I look at issues like faith, repentance, atonement, grace, works, those kinds of things that are, are the essence of a discussion of soteriology. I then look at various theories of atonement in the tradition and assert that no theory of atonement has ever been developed that is successful, that they all suffer from incredibly debilitating problems. And then I develop another theory, the compassion theory of atonement, that is consistent with an agopic theory of ethics, and that is a development broadly of the notion of salvation and exaltation in Mormonism. I then look at the notion of justification by grace and place it at least in the discussion of Paul's thought and Pauline thought, which are not the same thing, at how it works in his culture, which was an honor and shame culture. So I look at the anthropological issues related to honor and shame and then look at Paul's doctrine focusing really on biblical scholarship. And then I look at self-deception and justification by faith. I look at the developments in Paul's scholarship the genuine writings of Paul, and look in particular at the new perspective on Paul, which is a radical recognition that the Reformation view of 
salvation by grace and what justification mean, and that the Reformers fundamentally misunderstood what Paul was talking about. For a long time, it was kind of a new perspective. It then became the trend perspective, and I would say now it's the dominant perspective on Paul. And then look at the problem of grace in traditional Christian thought, looking at problems of imputed righteousness, and, and which is the Protestant view, of infused righteousness, which is a, at least a majority Catholic view. I look at the problem of predestination, which is a problem with both views, and ask if any form of predestination can be consistent with God's love. I then look at the tension between grace and free will and flesh that out, and then end up with what is essentially a groundbreaking way of looking at the last two sermons in Joseph Smith's life, the King Follett Discourse and the Sermon in the Grove. I suggest that in Mormon history, those two discourses have been fundamentally misunderstood and look at a hermeneutic of the discourse in light of what the base problems are that Joseph Smith is looking at and trying to solve, and how his discourse solves those problems, but in a way that places the discourses in a completely different context than really I think Mormons have placed it before. And I end the book that way. So that's kind of what we're looking at in Volume 2. It is really looking at the basic problems of soteriology in light of a development of the love of God. All right, great. So yeah, tonight we're going to start out and like I said, just kind of lay some foundations for what we're going to talk about throughout the book. All right, so the first section is titled Mormonism and God's Love. And we spent an entire book last time kind of developing a Mormon view of God. And now we're going to talk about this God that we've kind of developed, what, you know, his love. And so I'll just read a couple quotes here to introduce it. Well, first off, you know, the last book we moved towards more of a view away from the classical sense of the eternal perfection God that can't be changed or anything. And here's where the quote would come in. It says, it seems that the interpersonal God disclosed in the scripture is the most moved mover, as opposed to the unmoved mover you've all heard of and we talked at length about in the last book. That person who, above all else, seeks to persuade us to enter into a loving relationship of the type that exists between a father and a son or a committed husband and a beloved wife. And there's another quote that just kind of leads into that. So later you explain, you know, most of the theologies that are developed of God and his attributes or his character are based on either these essential divine attributes of classical theism or even God's power, and then everything that falls from that. They depart from what I would call ontal theology. So you're looking at metaphysical arguments at the base of the nature of cosmology, like Thomas Aquinas' five ways that have to do with an uncaused cause or whether or not there's an ultimate explanation. They're all basically impersonal types of explanations of what and who God is. And so I'm contrasting my approach from those approaches. All right, so here's this quote. It says, what if instead we started from the most basic commitment of Jesus' teachings, that God is the type of being who can enter into loving relationships of mutual reciprocity and intimate self-disclosure with us? What if we begin with the view that God is the type of person whom we would seek in intimate prayer as our Abba, or Daddy in Heaven, because that's what that means, basically. What if we begin with the commitment that we can enter into a genuine dialogue with God as a means of freely choosing to enter into relationship with God, and what if we commence with the faith that God respects our agency because granting us such space is necessary to allow us to choose whether we will? And so I guess one part I forgot to put in the quote here is just also you're starting from the view instead of from God's power. You're starting from, you know, what it says in the Bible is God is love. So we're starting basically from that view. If God is love, then he seeks all these things with us. So go more into that if you would. In the first volume, we looked at all of God's attributes as a groundwork to discussing a theory of Christology. And in developing a theory of Christology, we looked at the nature of divinity. And I believe that the nature of divinity in Mormonism means that God's divinity literally is the love of the divine persons for each other. That is, that persons who are in a certain kind of loving relationship have emergent properties of divinity, at least analogous to the way that the properties of water arise from a molecular relationship of hydrogen and oxygen. So God literally is the interpenetrating intelligence and spirit and light that is shared among individuals. The scriptures call it a doxa in Greek, meaning glory. 
it's a glory that is imparted to us and, and that we share and reflect back to him. And so the starting point for the second volume is a discussion of the nature of divine love that is at the base of this type of relationship. It's what we've been called to develop. It's what we've been called to be. It's what we've been called to reflect in our lives. And so Christianity, broadly, and Mormonism in particular, is a development of the love of God, not as an intellectual understanding, but as a committed life. What we're exploring are the issues that arise from granting that God is love in this respect. And so it's a very important, I think, recognition. And instead of doing ontotheology, I'm doing interpersonal theology. It's a different type of theology. I think the type of theology that we've been warned about, the type that people fear when they talk about theology and the tradition and what we should avoid is the type of ontotheology that I discussed in the tradition. It is not the type of theology that is a discussion of the nature of loving relationships, the nature of God's divine love, and how we more effectively love one another. That's precisely the type of theology that we ought to be discussing. We ought to be discussing more adequate views of central ideas like atonement so that we're not alienated by views that are just, when we look at them, morally repugnant on the best day. We should be looking at views of prayer so that our prayer life can be more effective and we can more accurately reflect in our prayers not merely the love of God for us and our love for Him, but a realization of really the nature of the relationship and what's possible. I mean, if somebody's praying to God to, to make a free choice for them, then they're asking for something that's impossible, and they're going to be very frustrated. And so the type of theology that we're now developing is an interpersonal theology. And so it's a very different type of theology that is done, or has been done, I believe, in the tradition. All right. This comes from the basic metaphysics of Mormonism. Another quote here, we don't have to really go into it, I just want to read it, is, Joseph Smith's most breathtaking and frankly audacious insight is that God seeks a peer relationship with us. He wants to bring us to relate to him and to one another with the very kind of interpenetrating love that the divine persons in the Godhead have for one another. And yeah, like I said, we don't need to go into that. We've talked about that before, but that is kind of the most radical claim that God's not seeking servants. He's not seeking people to worship him forever so that he can feel better. He's actually seeking us as peers because in Mormonism's metaphysics, we are the same type of being as God. To move on here, let's go over this last part here. In the book, you say there's two types of relationships envisioned in the Mormon scriptures. Let's go over each of them. The first is a relationship of complete control where one person gets all glory and if we are not agents to act for ourselves. And two, a relationship which we are free to reject if we choose to and in which we share mutually glorifying love if we choose to enter it. The choice between these two types of relationships is an ongoing choice. And so are you saying these are both reflected in Mormon scripture, or they just talk about it? Because I'm understanding the first one is kind of Satan's plan. Right. The very base mythos of Mormonism is embodied in the Book of Moses and also in the Doctrine and Covenants discussions of what is referred to as the war in heaven. It's a pre-earth war. And it's not a battle, you know, where people get out their weapons and blow each other away. It's a war over the nature of love and a war over the nature of the human soul. And so Satan suggests a plan because he's really worried. It's a kind of, how do I, it's a kind of pseudo love. He's so concerned about others experiencing pain and challenges, just discomfort that we have when we're being stretched beyond where we want to go that he proposes to not allow anybody the choice as to whether to sin or not, that he will save everyone. And in doing so, the, the Mormon scriptures make clear that he is not merely truncating human agency, he's destroying it, and that free will would be impossible in such a world. And he wants all of the glory for himself for saving everyone. Mormon scriptures are very clear about this kind of proposal. And the second is a proposal in which not all are guaranteed to be saved but in which we're free to choose whether we will be in a mutually glorifying relationship with the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost or not. And we will be challenged to grow and to move beyond where we are to transcend our present state through our free choices. It is, however, a risk. It's like the word life. There's a big if right in the middle of the word. 
what is being suggested is there's a real risk here. It may be that you will choose against love. It may be that you'll destroy the relationships that we allow you to choose into or not. It may be that it would be better that you weren't born because of the kinds of choices you make. And so there's a real risk involved here. It may be that when we send you to a world where you don't fully remember God, that you may never remember God, and he may seem like a fictitious being or a kind of Santa Claus fairy tale. And you'll be so caught up in the senses of your body that you won't be able to transcend them or see. And the subtle whisperings of the Spirit will be silent to you, and you'll doubt or deny that they even exist. So the second view is a view that respects human freedom and allows for the opportunity for us to choose whether to enter into a loving relationship with our Father in Heaven and with each other, but which carries with it a significant amount of risk because the nature of life is up to us. And the Bible's full of stories, mythopoeic or not, with respect to how God's entire creation has gone to hell in a handbasket and he kind of has to start over again. Or how isn't the people that he's called to love him reject him over and over and over again? And so this is an ongoing project. It's one in which we've argued in the past volume. There's a plan A and a plan B and a plan C and a plan D and so forth. And God is working with us to persuade us to move beyond and to learn to love each other in a way that we're not presently capable of. But in doing so, we've chosen to take on the risk. And we've chosen to experience pain. We've chosen to face challenges that may be so difficult that they are like a punch in the gut and it takes us a long time to get our air back. So those are the two types of relationships that are envisioned in Mormon scripture. All right, great. And Jacob, if you want to take us into the next section. All right. The next section is the logic of love. And um, in the book, you start off by quoting Vincent Brummer who is an emeritus professor of philosophy of religion at Utrecht University. And he elucidates two types of games in his game theory, or in other words, models of relationship which God could establish with human beings. If you want to go into the first and the second, and then which one makes more sense in light of Mormon scripture. And what do you mean by game theory as well? Like, what is that? Yeah. Game theory is a particular discipline in which one applies various decision tree logic, applies probability logic, and it's like if you're playing a game, just assume you're playing a game of chess, one that once a move is made looks at the possible moves that can be made from there and the likelihood that they're going to end up in winning the game at the end. So game theory is a modeling of various ways that things can be, looking at kind of the mathematical probabilities that arise in the game. But there are all kinds of different games, and these are interpersonal games. And interestingly, the two games that Brewer is suggesting, the two types of games, mirror the two types of relationships that are reflected in Mormon scripture. In the first game, we have what are interpersonal relationships. This is a game in which the first move has been made by God, and he says to us, yes, I choose to love you. We then have the next move. If we choose to love him, then there's a certain type of way of being in life that we must adopt in order to play the game. We are free to say no. There's a second game in which we're forced or guaranteed by just one party to the relationship that constitutes a win-lose relationship and by refusing to reciprocate the divine love when it's offered. So the first game results if we accept God's love in a win-win. The second game doesn't even have the possibility of a win-win. It's either a lose-lose or a win-lose. And so if we say no to God, then God has a choice to continue to strive with us, to persuade us to change our mind and accept him, maybe later, or to give up on us. The relationships are not totally reciprocal because we're not the same way. We can always count on God to never give up on us. It's not the same in respect to the way we respond to God. We're not guaranteed to always be faithful or to never give up. And so these are kind of the two models of games that Rumor sets up. They're the same kinds of, by the way, the same kinds of games that exist in human relationships. Let's say you go out on a date with a girl. You've already said yes to her because you invited her on a date, but you're also reassessing during the entire date, is this a relationship that works? Is it one that I'd like to pursue? And the girl can either say yes or no to the date. Having once said yes to the date is also playing this game. What's my further move? Am I going to say yes or no? And what are the probabilities along the way? 
you know, he wore deodorant, that's good. He wipes his nose on his sleeve, that's not. He has yellow teeth, I don't like that, but he combs his hair, that's good. So, you know, we get these games being played in, on the nature of relationships and really what Vincent Brumer is looking like. And Vincent Brumer is, by the way, developing these models based upon Jean-Paul Sartre's um, existentialist philosophy based upon the kinds of good faith and bad faith relationships that Sartre was talking about. So these are the two types of games that exist essentially for relationships as an ongoing game in order to say yes or no to each other. Okay, so that's game one where we can either have a win-win with us choosing to reciprocate God's love or a win-lose if we refuse that. How does game two play out? Well, I've explained how game two plays out. Game two is where the relationship is controlled by just one individual in the relationship. So one individual calls all the shots and the other individual's a rug mat. In the Christian tradition, it would be God chooses who he's going to save, who he's going to damn. That would be double predestination. Or he chooses who he's going to save and leaves the rest of damnation. And he's totally in control. We have nothing to say about it. It's all grace. And so this is a form of game two. In Armenianism, we have a form of game one where God offers sufficient grace to all persons as to whether they'll accept his offer of loving grace. And so it's up to us to reciprocate or not the love that God has already offered us in the first move of the game. So Arminianism is a form of game one. Calvinism is a form of game two. All right. And then later in his book, the model of love, Brumer clarifies and expands the typology of relationships. And he classifies relationships as, number one, a mutual fellowship, number two, agreements giving rise to rights and duties, and number three, manipulative relations. Yeah, so what we're looking at are the types of relationships, let's begin with the manipulative relations, where only one party controls everything that's going on. These are often sick relationships. But there are also relationships where one party gets to determine everything that the other party does. The second type of relationships is the kind of relationship that exists in a commercial agreement. So the value you have for me as a person is dependent on delivering to me at least as much or more value in return to what I'm offering you. And you're totally fungible. That's an economic term for suggesting anybody could take your place as long as they deliver the same value. In the first type of relationship, a mutual fellowship, only you will do. And so it's a relationship, and we've talked about the I-thou relationship. The mutual fellowship relationship is an I-thou relationship where each person is valued as an intrinsic center of value and an absolute center of value. That no object, no thing, could ever be as valuable as that person, and, and you're not fungible. The value that I derive is from the fact that it's you that is, is involved, not because there's some extrinsic value that you deliver to me. So if I enter into a contract with you to pay you $200 and you're going to deliver me a uh, half a beef, I can get a half a beef from just about anybody. And the value you have for me is the value of a half a beef. The relationship is a commercial relationship. Now, there's nothing inherently wrong with this type of relationship, but it's not a loving relationship. It's a commercial relationship. If, on the other hand, because you're my son, I don't want just any son. It doesn't matter whether you're a great son. It doesn't matter if you make a billion dollars a year. Only you will do. It's the relationship with you that is the most valuable thing in the world. So it's a relationship of mutual fellowship. And broadly, the problem we have is that oftentimes in our lives, we don't recognize the difference between a relationship of mutual fellowship and a commercial relationship of agreements giving rise to rights and duties. And we often fail to see when we're sliding into the third type of relationship, often people who want to control others for whatever reason, they're afraid that if they don't control them, they're going to get hurt. <laughs> okay. So mm -hmm. people who are in relationships begin to manipulate others so that they can avoid being hurt and avoid the pain of having to go through that again. They become more and more manipulative and controlling. So essentially what they're doing is setting their relationship up for a self-defeat because nobody really wants to be manipulated. It just doesn't feel good when a person believes that they can't trust us. And in order to be in relationship with us, they have to replace our decisions with their own decisions for us. That's not a real relationship. So that's the nature of the three relationships that Vincent Brunner was talking about. And uh, I just want to read a couple of quotes you had in the book that just really hammered it home because there's a crucial difference between a commercial relationship that's based on a contract and a covenant relationship that's based on the mutual agreements. And you say that in the covenant relationship, I agree to give everything I have and everything I am 
and Heavenly Father agrees to bless me by being my God. It is me that he seeks the covenant, not something else that could take my place. And in addition, mutual friendship involves risk in the sense that both persons must surrender control to engage in the relationship. Yeah, and that's important. Neither party is in control of the relationship when it's a true relationship of covenant making and mutual fellowship. We are both vulnerable in relationship to each other as a result. That is, we open ourselves up to being hurt because we love each other, and we open ourselves up to be hurt because when love is rejected, it hurts. It's the way human beings are. And so in a covenant relationship, what's at issue isn't some commercial benefit or something that is objectively valuable besides the person. What's valuable is the heart, soul, might, strength, every idiosyncrasy of that individual person that we're dealing with. It's the person that is most valuable in this relationship. All right. There's one more quote here uh, from Jean-Paul Sartre. I don't know if I said that right. but You did. He... It's, it's salt. <laughs> okay, salt. Uh, well, that's why I don't speak French. <laughs> but anyway. Well, you speak, you speak Russian. That's good enough. <laughs> You say that he he captures the essence perfectly of loving relationships when he says, The man who wants to be loved does not desire the enslavement of the beloved. He is not bent on becoming the object of passion which flows forth mechanically. He does not want to possess an automaton, and if we want to humiliate him, we need only to try and persuade him that the beloved's passion is the result of a psychological determination. The lover will then feel that both his love and his being are being cheapened. If the beloved is transformed into an automaton, the lover finds himself alone. Yeah, this is a recognition. It's a part of the early philosophy of Jean-Paul Sartre. He moved away from this later, but in his early philosophy, it was a recognition that if causal determinism is true, then genuine relationships are impossible. And if I love you, let's say that you know we we're with a woman and she expresses her love and we're just delighted because you know we love her so much and it just feels so great to be loved and then we find out that the reason she loves us is that she has a tumor in her brain causing her to be a little bit crazy well it's not really a choice it's just a physiological condition causing her to love us and it's not really love at all it's just physiology acting out and so it cheapens the love in fact it destroys even the possibility for love and so it's a part of what I've argued in the prior volume, and that is that there are some very valuable aspects of human relationships and existence that are impossible if causal determinism is true. And one of these is a genuine love, a relationship where a person makes a free choice to love. And it teaches us something very, very important here that's the foundation of the rest of the book. Love is freely given. It can't be coerced. No relationship of love could be coerced by one or the other in the relationship. It can't be forced. It can't be manipulated. It can't be brought about unknowingly because somebody hoodwinked us. It has to be a full-hearted choice of one's heart, mind, strength, and soul in order to fully love. And so an act of love is something that comes from our entire being. It has to be made with our entire being or it's not love at all. And so we're beginning now to look at the nature of love and what it would be, and even more importantly, what are the conditions that are necessary for this kind of love to be possible and to exist? Excellent. With that, we'll go on to the next section, and probably don't need to spend a whole lot of time here since we've discussed before, but I'll pass back over to Corey for the I-Thou relation. So yeah, like I said, the natural flow next is to talk about this I-Thou relationship that we developed pretty well in one of the first podcasts on the first book. And we can kind of recap here, but we've already done it, so unless there's anything new, we can just kind of leave it as an overview. But Martin Buber is the one that kind of developed this I-Thou relation, and it's based upon the main idea of Immanuel Kant's categorical imperative, which is to treat the other or another person as ends in themselves and never as means to ends. Meaning, just like you said, the type of relationship of commercial type relationship where it's like, I am relationship and I care about you because you can provide me with something. You, will, you are a means to an end. And he says that is immoral and we should, in true loving relationships, we would treat one another as the ends, meaning we see them as this full and complete other. And in, in Mormonism, you know, we, we have this pretty fully developed where we see everyone, or we're supposed to see everyone, as divine and their potential gods. And that idea is pretty earth-breaking as well, rather than just seeing a bunch of other miserable sinners and creatures what we can see is true divine 
beings that deserve all this love and it's not just because of that anyway what and is there anything else you'd want to go into on that one yeah what it means is now there's nothing wrong with engaging in a commercial relationship per se it's just that the value that's realized through a commercial relationship isn't an interpersonal relationship it's the obtaining of goods nothing wrong with obtaining goods we need those to live but if our relationships ended with commercial relationships we would have very shallow and meaningless relationships at the end of the day the second thing is that when we're treating a person as an end in and of themselves, we're recognizing that we could never subordinate them to something less valuable so that those things that are ultimately most important must never be at the mercy of those things that are merely presently important, but ultimately just don't matter. And often when we begin to talk about interpersonal relationships and the way we treat each other, it becomes also kind of a recognition of what makes relationships work and what makes them valuable and how we can show up in a loving way in relationships that will make our relationships more meaningful, deeper, and more constant and reliable and much, much more enjoyable. And it's based upon a kind of an assumption, and we get into this more when we talk about a theory of ethics, but humans are we're just the kind of beings that thrive in interpersonal relationships and thrive mostly when we are able to fully give our gifts of love and to freely accept the gifts of love that others offer to us. And so we thrive in loving families. We thrive in loving marriages. We thrive with wonderful friends. And ultimately, for Mormonism, these types of relationships are not merely godlike. They are divine. And it also means that virtually everybody, we call each other brothers and sisters. Oftentimes we forget what we're saying. We're saying we're brothers and sisters because we have a common parentage, and it means we're the same kinds of being as God. And so really what we are are not merely gods in the making. We are gods having a human experience. And just saying that is so shocking. It's so profound and, and so remarkable that we begin to realize why there are a lot of people in the tradition who look at Mormons and just say, you guys are crazy. But that's the commitment of Mormonism. We can see from this idea that has been developed here and in the last book that this is the very thing that humans strive for. Like you said, it's the divine relationship that God has invited us into. And that to be a God is to be able to have this type of relationship with other people. And though we may have some semblance of that with some people, it's the very thing we're overcoming as humans is viewing people as an it. And it's hard to do, even though you may think you do. A lot of the time, if there's no benefit in it for you, then you can't give the type of love. And that's sort of human nature. And sometimes it's a safety mechanism to not get hurt. And sometimes that's necessary and it's, it's real and you shouldn't surrender yourself to every last person this way because you can't. But that's what we're striving for. That's what Zion is. And it's a recognition of the power of vulnerability in human relationships because ultimately what we're saying is because there's a risk in human relationships. There's a risk in opening our hearts to love, and that is that the gift of love we give may be rejected, and that hurts, especially if we've based our lives and, and maybe even our well-being on the relationship. And so we're talking about something that is the very essence of our lived human lives and what it is that will open us up to each other to be vulnerable. And when I say the power of vulnerability, the willingness to open and to be willing to feel the pain, if that's what another person chooses, is a part of what our growth is all about. There is a lot of power in vulnerability in relationships. The strongest people are not those who are least vulnerable. There are those who are most willing to be vulnerable and open to others. And even after being rejected over and over and over again, still willing. I mean, that's why I think the example of Jesus is so remarkable and strong because he was rejected, and he always returned love. You know, whenever there was hate and rejection, he returned it with love. And I just find that to be so valuable. So what we're going to be talking about are ways, you know, marriage counseling and, and ways to be with your children in a way that makes life fulfilling. And so maybe these are free therapy sessions. All right, great. All right, the next topic, which is what I want, well, I guess we spent a lot of time on the other ones as well, but I just kind of want to spend some time hashing out a couple things here. The next section is called Unconditional Love and Fellowship. And in this section, you examine an article by Elder Nelson of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles. Because in 2003, he published an article in the Enzyme called Divine Love, and there's some issues with it. So let me just read this quote here. It says, The very notion of unconditional love has become something of a dirty word among many Latter-day Saints. 
a particularly noteworthy instance of the reluctance to see God's love as unconditional in LDS thought is in an article by Elder Russell M. Nelson, somewhat ironically entitled Divine Love. And so let me just give kind of an outline here of what's stated, and then we can go over it. So in the article, he basically says, While divine love can be called perfect, infinite, enduring, and universal, it cannot be correctly characterized as unconditional. The word does not appear in the scriptures. On the other hand, many verses affirm that the higher levels of love the Father and Son fill for us, and certain divine blessings stemming from that love, are conditional. So that's kind of the basic premise of the argument, but you kind of point out he has three premises of an argument that he's making, and they kind of don't go together. Let's discuss each of them. It says, Elder Nesson teaches that we should only give the blessings of love to our children if they obey us. I guess we need to talk about that, but we'll get to that in a second. Love is conditioned on obedience. However, it seems fairly transparent that Elder Nelson has asserted at least three inconsistent positions. And here they are. And I'll post a link to this article so you can read the whole thing so you know what we're talking about specifically. But first, God loves only those who keep his commandments. Two, God loves sinners who don't keep his commandments. And three, God loves everyone. So I'll go over kind of the problems with that and what you see as the issues. Yeah, first of all, you know, what would truly unconditional love be like? It would mean it doesn't matter what you do. It doesn't matter what you do to me. It doesn't matter how you treat yourself. I love you. And my love isn't conditioned on whether you return my love. It's not conditioned on whether your life matches what I think your life ought to be. I love you anyway. And so that's the kind of love that we're talking about. And it's not merely the kind of love, well, well, I can accept you. I'm I'm a very, you know, broad person, uh, open to diversity. It's the kind of love where your life project is something that I not merely support, but I engage in with you because your life project um, for you has become my life project for you. And I'm not here to make you over in my image so that your life reflects my project for you. What Elder Nelson is, is suggesting is that in relationship with God, if our project isn't God's project, God doesn't like us. <laughs> he doesn't love us. But then he makes these kinds of statements in the article that he writes that God loves even those who don't keep his commandments and that he loves everyone. Well, that's totally inconsistent with suggesting that he only loves those who keep his commandments. Those are just direct denials of each other. God loves those who don't keep his commandments and he loves only those who do keep his commandments is a direct contradiction. And so what I'm looking at is some way of making sense. I start with the assumption that he just can't be that dull and, and stupid. He's a bright guy. And so I engage in an assumption of charity. Certainly, there's got to be a way of making sense of the statements so that they obviously contradictory statements. There must be a way of resolving the tension that exists in what he's saying. And that is, I suggest that the word love in each of these sentences is equivocal. That is, it doesn't mean the same thing. He's talking about different kinds of love. Let me give an example here. Let's say that Corey, who is my son, had when he were a teenager engaged in certain type of conduct where he was physically threatening my wife. Now, he knows that if he physically threatens my wife, he's out because I let him know all along. When it comes down to a choice between you and my love for my wife, you lose. I just like to note that this uh, is a fictional story. Proceed. (laughs) It, It is a fictional story. But it's not fictional that I let them know that their mother came first and that if it came down to, you know, they were threatening her or something like that, it would be an easy choice for me. Now, that never happened. They was very loving with their mother. But this is a story. Let's say that he's physically threatening my wife, Christine. He's never done, and I don't anticipate that he ever will, but it certainly has happened in some instances in some family. Well, I could exclude him from the home under such circumstances because I can't maintain fellowship with him. I can't have him in the house under the circumstances. That doesn't entail that I don't love him. But we're talking about two different kinds of love. I love him in the sense that I'm committed to his best interest. I'm committed to always being there for him to the extent that I can. I'm committed to always loving him and letting him know that I love him and that anytime he's willing to you know, apologize and commit in a trustworthy way to not be harmful, that he'll be admitted back. But I can't maintain fellowship with somebody whose conduct is injurious to other people in the family or that could be physically harmful. So we have two different kinds of love that we're talking about here. We're talking about universal, unconditional love. The kind that God has for everyone is the kind of love that 
a father can have for a son, even if he's excluded from the house because he's on drugs and is ripping everybody in the house off and threatening their well-being. Let me ask you, in light of that we're actually talking about God's love, is there a type of thing that we could do to make it so that we couldn't have fellowship with God either? Because I understand that in an actual relationship where you're physically, or it's just, you know, this person is doing you harm, but can we ever really be that big of a threat to God? Yeah. It's not that we're that kind of a threat to God. God's left us free to say no to Him. If we engage in conduct that is unloving, if we choose not to love, no power in the universe, not even divine power, can cause us to love. And the blessings of fellowship come when we choose to love. Nobody else in the universe can choose to love for us. If we choose not to love, God will honor it. And it follows that a relationship of fellowship love is impossible because we have rejected fellowship love. We can act in a way that is injurious to the relationship with God. He's given us all of the commandments for a single purpose. He's given us the commandments to teach us how to love one another. All of the commandments, this is a Christian teaching. All of the commandments have one purpose, and that's to teach us to love one another. That's all they are. And to love God. Yeah, and to love God. So they're there to teach us about love, and we can sum up all the commandments in one word, and that is love. And so they all have this purpose, and that's the end purpose of the commandments. The commandments and keeping commandments are not an end in and of themselves. The goal of teaching us to love is the end. And so by not keeping the commandments, we are acting in a way that is inconsistent with being in a fellowship relationship with God. And so the type of love that Elder Nelson is talking about, he actually alludes to this. Note what he said. The scriptures assert that the, quote, higher levels of love, the Father and Son fill for each of us, unquote. The higher levels of love mean it's not a normal kind of or a lower level of love. This is the highest kind of love he has. And so I think he's saying vaguely what it is really very imperative to clarify, because otherwise people will misunderstand, and that is that it is the type of fellowship love that is at issue when we're talking about God's love being conditional. And the reason that it's conditional isn't that God isn't loving. It's that we're in the game, and we have rejected God's first offer of love. He offered us love first. He's seeking to have us respond with our own love, but we can choose to say no to his love. And if we say no to his love, he can't bring us into a loving relationship with himself because he must leave us free to choose that relationship or not. It follows the kinds of blessings he would like to give us. So let's bring it back down to earth as well. I want a loving relationship with my son, but he's so strung out on drugs and he's so desperate for drugs. He steals from everybody in the house. He gets incoherent and gets angry and, and maybe even physically violent. I clearly love my son. I want him to overcome the challenges that arise from being addicted to drugs. I want to do everything that I can for him to see if I can assist him to overcome drugs. But he's got to make a choice. He's got to commit. It's got to be his choice to overcome that kind of a challenge. I love him during the entire time, but I can't have him in the home because everybody else's well-being is at risk while he's in the home. So what I have for my son is this kind of universal, unconditional love, but I can't maintain fellowship love. Let's bring it even more down. And in, in the words used in the Gospel of John, you know, God is making a home. He comes and dwells with us. The words there are about dwelling together in a common habitation or house. That's the kind of love that it's talking about. There is precisely the kind of love that we have when we live in the same home, and God wants to take up a boat with us in the same home. He wants to live with us in a family relationship. And so when we're talking about this kind of difference, Exaltation is living with God in his habitation, in his abode. And so exaltation is sharing with God the very type of life that he has in his house. But if we choose not to be in that relationship, he can't bring us into his house because he can't force us to be there. We've said no to him, or we've engaged in conduct. And this is where self-deception comes in that we'll talk about later. We say that we love God. We say we want to be with him, but all of our actions are inconsistent with what we're saying. We may even truly believe that we qualify to be with God because he loves everyone. And I think this is the nub of what Elder Nelson is at. It's not the case that no matter what you do, you're entitled to exaltation, to be accepted into close, familiar relationship with God. If you say no to the relationship, you can't be in that relationship. But even more, if all you have are words and lip service and your entire life is inconsistent with being in that relationship, then you're deceiving yourself. You can't be in that relationship. 
And so I can't really say that this kind of relationship is unconditional. It's not the case that God simply gives you his grace and you're in this relationship. He can't do it all alone. And even if you believe that you're in this relationship, your conduct's going to speak more loudly than your words. There's a lot about this in the epistle of James, by the way. And so what we're talking about is also a way of beginning to frame the issues around grace and works. In order to be in a relationship of exalting love, we must act with exalting love. That is, we keep the commandments. We respect each other. We treat each other with the greatest dignity. We respect each other's decisions about our projects for our own lives and so forth. So this is the type of action that is necessary, and these are the type of works that are necessary. The works that the Gospels are calling us to are works of love. They're the kind of works that strengthen and heal relationships that we have with each other and with God. On the other hand, there's a type of grace that's given to us that is universal and unconditional. God loves us. There's nothing we can do that will make it so that God doesn't love us in this sense of universal love. He loves everybody in the same way. We're not more special than anybody else. And so he gives us this grace. It's reflected in the statement in the first epistle of John, he loved us first, which is to say he's always loved us. He's always made the first move to love us. And so we're talking about relationships where God is always choosing us, and he's inviting us into a type of relationship that is much closer. It's a familiar relationship in the same divine abode. But it's up to us, and it's not enough to say, yeah, yeah, I accept that kind of relationship. It is important, however, to say God loves me, and that inspires me to love him back. His grace has transformed me. And I think this is what really the doctrine of justification by grace is getting at. I'm so grateful to God for having chosen me and having accepted me that I am inspired to accept him back and then to begin the process of sanctification, that is growth in relationship with God, by learning how to appropriately honor him through my love. And I do that by loving others. So what we're talking about in terms of God's unconditional love is this universal love. It is grace. The fellowship relationship that we're after, however, is conditional. It can't simply be given to us. We must learn to love each other and to act in a way that shows and expresses our love, or we can't be in that kind of relationship. So, a relationship of exaltation, the word that's used in uh, the epistle of James for better or for worse is works, but what he means is the same thing that Paul says in Romans, works of love. And it's works of love that we're called to do. And so, this kind of resolves, if you begin to frame it in this way, we're already beginning to resolve the tension between grace and works in Christian thought. This is a way of framing the entire issue so that it kind of dissolves. All right, kind of a question statement I'm just kind of thinking out loud. I just have two conflicting views, I guess, in this, and I'm trying to parse it out, so I'm just going to, some of this might be rambling, but one part of me, it says, what God wants for us is to develop our character. We talked about a while ago, like, worship worthiness and God and stuff like that, but at least as far as I understand, I guess there's a couple scriptures maybe that would say otherwise, but the Mormon God doesn't necessarily seek worship. He's not saying, oh, I'm so great, therefore worship me. He's, like you said, he's seeking a pair relationship. But to get that, we need to develop to be more like him. And so we're learning to be more like God. And then there's the other half where it's saying like, oh, well, we have to do certain things for God to accept us into his kingdom. But one thing I was just thinking of while you were talking is, well, the crux of what Mormon theology or whatever is trying to go to is this Zion community. And there's a lot of, well, just everything. So like the Ten Commandments themselves seem to be, if you read through them, they're all relational. They all have to do with relating to other people, to God, and all the other ones have to do with loving your neighbor and how to do that while on earth. And so, at least what I'm thinking in my mind as a new thought is, well, to have this community, which is really what, what we're trying to build in Mormonism, is a community of people, not just develop one person into a god, but try to develop a whole community of divine beings. Like you've been saying, there are conditions to this relationship so that everyone can develop together. It's not just between you and God, it's between you, God, and everyone else. Yeah, and that's because that exaltation can never be done all alone, and to the extent that a single person isn't there with us. Imagine you're there, I don't know if, you, you know, in our family there are five children. Imagine being there without one of your sisters. 
that's not exaltation. Whatever else we all achieve, if that person has refused to be with us, it's like having children and one of your children refuses to have a relationship with you. They'll never come around. They refuse to speak with you. They've just totally rejected the family. And you can't force them to have a relationship. And so it doesn't matter. Every family gathering you get at, no matter how wonderful it is, it's diminished by the fact that it's incomplete. Somebody else should be there. And so in Mormonism, exaltation can't leave anybody out because it's incomplete to the extent the one speck of dirt in the universe is left unexalted. It is diminished greatly to the extent there's just one of us that isn't there. We're all brothers and sisters. We call each other brothers and sisters. To the extent one of us isn't there, we're incomplete. And so the notion of exaltation, everything in Mormonism is about this community of a family that is saved together and exalted together. So we can be saved individually, but the kind of fulfillment of relationship in this fellowship type of relationship demands and can't even be satisfied in any way until it becomes a universal demand for everybody to be there with us. And we'll never give up. It doesn't matter how often we've been rejected or how long we've been rejected. We'll never give up the endeavor to persuade, to heal the relationship, and to be back together. It's like a part of what the prodigal son is about. You've got a son who's gone off on his own. He's lived a riotous life without his family. He's got a faithful brother who's always been there. And his father is so happy when he comes back that he can hardly contain his joy. And it really miffs the other sibling who's there saying, well, I didn't run off and live riotously, and I've been here all along. Where's my feast? <laughs> and the father's saying, you don't understand. I'm rejoicing so greatly in the one that was lost. You've got everything I've got. We're already in relationship. You've got the entire farm. I've already given it to you. But now he's coming back, and I'm so grateful because now our love can be completed. It's like that. All right. Well, two things then. One is more of a statement. The next kind of a question about what you're saying there. So in our ward recently, we had a family therapy psychologist guy come, and he says, in Mormonism, we have this danger that we use this theology a lot of ways what he calls violently, and not, I don't mean physically violently, but as a manipulative form of relationship. He gave a story of a father and a son, and the son was rebellious, and, you know, he was not living the gospel life, and he was straying from the church, and he didn't know if he wanted to be at church, and the, every time he'd come to the house, his father just had this anger and tension at him, and he'd say things to him like, no empty chairs, son, no empty chairs in the celestial kingdom. But he'd use that to justify treating him badly. Anyway, he got him to sit down together and just actually let them understand that the reason that the father's doing that is because of love, but the way he's doing it is definitely not an effective way. Yeah, he's being manipulative. It's the kind of self-deception where we engage in relationships that are the third type manipulative relationships to accomplish a goal that we think is for the purpose of an I-thou relationship or a fellowship relationship. That's where self-deception enters in, and we'll talk about that at some length during the course of the book. Right, so I'm just saying I don't want to have people think, just based on what you're saying, that justifies then excluding family members just because they don't, you know, this this threat of not being exalted together should never be used as a reason to, I don't know, manipulate someone else or just realize that that's not helpful, I guess, is what I'm getting at. Remember, it's always honoring the choice of the other person, that is... You say that we don't really worship God in Mormonism. Let me exchange it for another word that I think more accurately reflects what is in the statement that we worship God. We honor God and love God because He loved us first and for all the gifts He's given and the opportunities that we have in this life and the beautiful world that He's given us and all the blessings that we have. It's just this overflowing gratitude and love that we have for God that we want to express. We find different ways to express it. The gratitude is so deep that we express it in song, we express it in our rites and ordinances, we express it in the way we live our lives, we express it in the words that we speak. So the honoring that takes place is really a sense of overflowing gratitude for God and what He's done for us and our way of expressing that gratitude that goes beyond normal human language. Second, you know, what you're saying is absolutely right. This is not to be used as a great big stick to beat people over the head with, to say, you're diminishing my life because you're not here. That's manipulative. Nor is it to say, your project for your life has to be my project for your life. <laughs> okay? Even God honors every single choice we make. 
And if we choose not to be with them, he also honors that choice. But we have to realize we can't have it just any way we want. We can't say, I love you, and then act in a way that's inconsistent with being loving. It just doesn't work. And so to the extent what we're seeking are loving, fulfilling relationships, it really is the case that there is a type of conduct that's inconsistent with that. And I think that a loving parent seeks to teach his and her children that you're going to be fulfilled in relationships by being kind and listening and being open and vulnerable and so forth and modeling that. And so let's say that there's a child who chooses out of the church. And as a result, the parents are very angry. They think that the child is going to hell and it's going to diminish their happiness in eternity. Well, it may, (laughs) but that's not a reason to say, I'm sorry, your project for your life is no longer something that's feasible for you. I want you to adopt my project for your life. People get to choose what the project for their own life is and what their lives are about and how they want to live their lives. And it's up to us, I think, I think that a genuine love honors each of the choices that we make. It's the hard part of love. I mean, it's really hard to honor the choices that people make that we see are self-destructive for them or the destructive of a relationship or that we think are going to have eternal consequences and lead to eternal misery for that person. It's perfectly natural for a loving parent to say, oh man, I really don't want to see you suffering for all eternity because you rejected the divine love when it was offered. I've taught you the best I know how. But there's this this paradox of love, perhaps, that love also can't force anybody to live the project that we have for them. It's their project for their life that we honor. And so if they choose a life that's against something that we value, it's their choice, and we honor the choice. Another way to think about that, at least that I've been developing in my own mind lately, is that, I mean, you can call it celestial kingdom or whatever, but the fact is more likely that it's a group of celestial beings you know, I don't know if it's an actual physical place. It's just a level of being. And so, you know, it's not like a place that, you oh, you, you didn't do all the right things, so you can't be here. It's like, no, you, you won't feel comfortable here. You won't want to be here. It's Jesus who will be saying, please stay, rather than saying, oh, you know what? You're five points short and you didn't make it. Now you can't come in. Yeah, we developed that later in the book, talking about judgment. And I assert that all judgment is self-judgment. In other words, it's not Christ who excludes us. We exclude ourselves. A perfect scripture here is that we would rather have the rocks fall on us to be in the presence of the perfection of God that highlights so clearly our shortcomings. And so it it can be hard to be in the presence of a God. And we have peccadillos that get in our way of being loving and that make us really unlovable. What's a peccadillo? It's a fault, okay? Something that, that really bugs us or bugs other people about us. You know, it's like, let's say that you've got a spouse who smacks when she eats, (laughs) okay? I mean, it's really a small thing, but divorces have happened over a lot less. (laughs) It just, they they focus, you know, you can't get it out of the mind. I hate the way she smacks when she eats. I've actually heard this complaint, by the way. And so that's a peccadillo. It's an extremely small thing. And extremely small things can remain small for a finite amount of time. But over an eternity, they all become important. And so, you know, we're working on ourselves in a way that we're working to be fit and capable of returning the divine love with our own divine love, that kind of love. And so it doesn't matter what choices are made by others. We're called to love. It may be that their actions are inconsistent with fellowship love, and so they can't abide with us. They can't be with us in the kind of close relationship that we would like to have because their conduct is just inconsistent with that. But we still love them. We're still committed to the best for them in their lives. We're committed to whatever will lead to the greatest happiness they're willing to accept. We're after them to make the greatest human flourishing possible that they're willing to engage in. But always we're going to honor their accountability And we're not going to assume the accountability for them and take over and become like a helicopter parent that does it for the child so the child never learns, that kind of thing. So as we go through the book, we're going to be discussing a lot of these kinds of interpersonal interactions and learning about the nature of love and what it is that's exalting and what it is that gets in the way of being in an exalting relationship of fellowship love. We're going to learn what it is to have this kind of universal love for everyone, regardless of how they act regardless of what they believe. And we are loving in that way because we are loving, not because they're worthy of our love. Everybody's worthy of that love, and we give that love simply because we are loving, and that's the way that we choose to be. So as we go through all of these issues, we're going to be talking about 
what works in relationships, especially when we get into self-deception. The books that I refer to in self-deception, I'll be recommending for everybody to read because I think that they give an opportunity for a person to take a good look in the mirror. You remember the song by Michael Jackson, you want to change the world, you start with the guy in the mirror. And to assess the types of games that we play with other people and why it is that we hurt the people that we say that we love the most, or at least we say we love the most. Why is it that they're paying the price for our issues in our lives? Why is it that the people we love the most are the ones we hurt the most? And those kinds of things. So as we go along, it's that the nature of this kind of relationship will be instructive so that we can actually get a better optic on the nature of the relationship that we're discussing so that we can better embody it in our lives and reflect the love that we seek in our relationships. And to me, that's valuable. I think the distinction between grace and the universal love and fellowship love, which requires a certain way of conducting our lives and thus works, is a very good way of reframing this issue so that we simply begin by dissolving this issue. We'll be discussing this at greater length as we get into predestination and salvation by faith and justification and sanctification. They're all part of that soteriology. We'll be discussing them at length. So, you know, stay tuned. I want to end with the last statement, actually, that you quote. I think it's a profound statement, and I, I think it's a good summation. Okay, and that is, oh, by the way, I think I've helped clarify what Elder Nelson was saying. I also have some things. When he says that we should love our children only if they obey us, let me just outright reject that. If what he means is that we should not have the kind of universal love seeking the best interest of our children unless they obey us, that's just nonsense. If what he means is we should only allow them in the house if they're not going to be harming other people in the family, then I can agree with that. But that doesn't seem to be what he's saying to me. I don't think love is conditioned on obedience. However, I think there is a proper way to frame the relationship between obedience and love, especially in our relationship with God, and it's this. We do not earn the relationship with God by keeping the commandments. Nevertheless, the commandments define how loving persons respond to each other, and in the absence of such a loving response, a relationship of close and abiding fellowship cannot endure, because that's exactly what the commandments are teaching us to do, is to live in close and abiding relationship of love. So... I'm going to give Elder Nelson the benefit of the doubt and suggest that I think he really meant what I'm saying is the best way to parse this, and not what, at least on its face, it appears he's saying. I guess I kind of have a little question about that. Obviously, it takes quite a bit of digging into this talk to dig that out. Do you think, uh, number one, that Elder Nelson had that on his mind when he was sharing it, and number two, seeing as how the vast majority of people that have read the talk don't see it that way. Maybe they haven't taken the time to dig through it like you have, but is it really effective that he gave this kind of a talk if it's not being understood the way it should be? I don't read mine, so I don't have, I don't know what he meant. And he's not a lawyer, so he doesn't write with the pellucid clarity that comes from writing to make oneself understood on a constant basis. But that's not how I read him either. He hints at this distinction between fellowship love and universal love by talking about higher levels of love. And so he has two different notions of love in mind, actually. But I don't think when he wrote the article that he was really clear in his own mind about the distinction. I think what he was simply doing was rejecting the notion that there's any kind of unconditional love. To that extent, I disagree with him. However, because he hints at it, I'd like to read him charitably and say, perhaps he was pointing toward that but what are you going to do in an insider article? It's not the place to go into a highly nuanced discussion of these kinds of issues. And so, you know, the medium limits him, the space limits him. And maybe if we sat down and talked about it and I gave him the distinction, he'd say, oh, yeah, that's what I meant. I'm going to give him the benefit of the doubt. However, in doing so, I'm being arrogant because I'm suggesting that if he's going to get what he thinks right, he probably ought to agree with me, which is a fairly arrogant assertion to make, especially about an apostle. And so what I'm going to do is simply to suggest what he's written is not clear, and I've parsed it in a way that I think makes sense. And here's the most valuable part of this. There is an appropriate caution here, and that is to think that no matter what you do, because God has to love you so much that he has to give you everything that he has and everything that he's promised, even if you don't keep his commandments. And it's the case that no matter what you do, you're going to be accepted in the same kind of full fellowship in the celestial kingdom, no matter what, because God loves you so much, he's not going to leave you behind, and he's going to be diminished if you're not there. 
That's not what the scriptures say. The scriptures are very clear. In order to show and demonstrate love for God in a way that we're fit to be in, in this divine relationship, we keep the commandments. And the reason we keep the commandments is not because it's a command, but because it's the way loving people treat each other. And we can't be in a loving relationship unless we treat each other lovingly. It's a simple tautology. It is simply true and can't be even argued with. In order to be in a loving relationship, we must be loving. Nobody else can choose to be loving for us. Nobody can force us to be loving. And we can't have the gifts and benefits of a loving relationship if we don't choose to love and if we act in an unloving way. This is the reality. We can't be in a close relationship with another person if we act in a way that is harmful to that relationship. It doesn't matter how much we love that person, how long we strive with them. If either we or they continue to act in a way that's inconsistent with being in a relationship, the relationship can't continue. And this is just the nature of the logic of relationships, okay? Mm. And so I think there's an important caution here. You shouldn't think that no matter what I do, they have to love me and accept me and give me everything they've got and keep me in the house. That's not the way relationships work. The logic of relationships and the logic of love, and that's what the whole point of this chapter is, is the logic of love. The logic of love requires that in order to have the blessings of a loving relationship, we must choose to be loving. I think that's a good place to end. Yeah, if there's nothing else, then we will sum up there, and next time we'll tackle prayer. Thank you for joining us. To support the podcast, donate at exploringmormonthought.com. Follow us on facebook.com forward slash exploringmormonthought.com.